From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrin. Thanks for inviting me into your home. Long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi. Your parents' well-appointed rec room with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker. Your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. A big howdy. To those of you tuning us in on one of our affiliate stations across North America, and hey you, streaming us on my YouTube channel, Strange Planet. And I see you all in the uh, YouTube live chat, however and wherever you're listening. I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. Coming up later this hour, a conversation with my late friend and partner, R. Gary Patterson, regarding John Lennon and the number nine, which seemed to follow him around his entire life and even in death. Here's a short article from Beatles University. During his years of seclusion, John Lennon dove headlong into numerology. It was just what he needed. Numerology could quickly be applied to any situation to get a preliminary reading on the future. Simple, compelling, and poetic, the laws of numerology have the power to make even the staunchest skeptic want to believe in it. Like playing the lottery, it can be addictive. After learning about numerology, John and Yoko were unable to walk out of the house without finding mystical significance in every license plate, addresses, and street sign. They would not so much as dial a telephone number without first consulting their Bible, Chero's Book of Numbers, which could have been subtitled, Numerology Made Easy. Now, let's get back to Don Jeffries the author of Crimes and Cover-Ups in American Politics, 1776 to 1963. Don, I want to talk about Smedley Butler. War is a racket. One little pamphlet uh, written 70-some years ago that is still uh, quoted uh, to this day and has, I think, inspired people like Tulsi Gabbard and others. But tell us a little bit about who Smedley Butler was. Yeah, well, he was uh, obviously a general, so he attained the highest rank you could attain in the military. And like many really great anti-war voices, he saw war firsthand. And uh, unlike a pacifist like me that would be sitting on the couch and just kind of being having an aversion to it, and he wrote Wars, uh, Wars a Racket should have been the common sense, like Thomas Paine's pamphlet. It should have been the modern version of that. It didn't get the publicity it should have. For instance, I was the first one, Huey Long's great-granddaughter didn't even know this, but Smedley Butler was very closely connected to Huey Long, my hero. And in fact, she was shocked when I told her, I, I found all this researching it, that Huey Long wrote a book called My First Days in the White House, which he had the audacity to do, of course, before even running for president. And then, of course, they assassinated him, so it was published posthumously. But he had a fictitious cabinet that he named and his Secretary of War, because this was before they renamed it Secretary of Defense, was Smedley Butler, mm. the greatest anti-war activist of all time. So you know what, what kind of <laughs> administration Huey Long would have had with Smedley Butler. There. And Smedley Butler called being named Secretary of War in Huey Long's fictitious cabinet the greatest honor of his life. And when Huey Long was assassinated, he came out publicly and said, my whole interest in politics has died with Huey Long. And even his you know, great-granddaughter didn't know that. So they were very closely connected. It's curious because a lot of people on the left revere Smedley Butler. They don't revere Huey Long. In fact, Smedley Butler was the kind of leftist that I am, as was Huey Long. For instance, the Bonus Army, which we haven't talked about, the Bonus Army from World War I, which uh, was overrun by people like a young Patton 
and a young MacArthur, and a young, even younger Eisenhower, unfortunately. They were routed from their tents on the Capitol lawns. They were, they were promised a bonus, and they didn't get it. The U.S. government betrayed them. In many cases, they were very poor. They needed the bonus, but so young Franklin Roosevelt opposed giving them the bonuses. That's the kind of Clinton-Obama leftist that even existed then, whereas Huey Long and Smedley Butler were in the forefront of demanding that they be paid their bonus. So you, you can see the difference if you go and study history and, and see what kind of people were out there. Even then, you can draw parallels to the kind of figures you, you right. see today. And Butler's cynicism was earned honestly, served in what were called the banana wars in the Caribbean yes. and in the Philippines. So he came to realize, just as the title of the pamphlet suggests, war is a racket. Talk to me, though, he was asked to participate in this business plot against... Franklin Roosevelt. Talk to me about that. I find that entire thing curious, and I don't. I don't doubt for a second that he was approached because Smedley Butler was an honest man. So I, I wouldn't disagree with anything he said. So I'm certain, quite certain, he was telling the truth. I just have a hard time believing, as I write in the book, that this well-known anti-fascist, you know, honest liberal, who would approach him with the idea of overthrowing Franklin Roosevelt at the behest of, I guess, a far right-wing corporate group. I mean, why would they think that that Smedley Butler would agree to do that? So I find the whole scenario very strange, and I don't know if it was conjured up to make Roosevelt look better, and that, that he was kind of this enemy of the corporate world when he wasn't. He was anything but that, as Huey Long pointed out over and over again. So I've always found that story to be very curious, and again, not because I doubt anything on Smedley Butler's part, but I find just knowing what Roosevelt really was, which was a toady of Wall Street and a toady of the big banks and of corporate America, and he was kind of uh, playing this role as this kind of a milquetoast figure that was trying to meekly reform things, and thank goodness the pressure of uh, people like Huey Long, we ended up with very few things that came through the New Deal that were good, and one of them was the legislation in 1938, which gave us the 40-hour work week and the concept of overtime and things like that that American workers didn't have before that. And it was because people like Huey Long were advocating a 20- or 30-hour work week and you know, three months off, all much, much more uh, extreme worker protections. But I have lots of quotes from Smedley Butler in the book, and I, you know, I'd urge, I don't remember them all off the top of my head, but he talked quite a bit, as you mentioned, about how how the money he made for uh, big corporations and and how these uh, smaller countries, especially in Latin America, were exploited. And certainly, they're still doing that today. And of course, later they would become kind of intertwined with United Fruit and companies like that that were CIA affiliates. Fletcher Prouty would later, he's kind of a, in many ways, he echoed decades later what Smedley Butler was talking about, what his experiences were as far as uh, the way uh, the military and the intelligence agencies, along with corporate America, exploited these smaller nations. And Smedley Butler was a, was a, if, if people had listened to him and if the left had been more like Smedley Butler and uh, less like FDR, we'd be a much better country today. Right. Old Gimlet Eye, they called him. Uh, <laughs> do you know where that came from, that strange nickname? I don't. I don't. I don't know that. And in fact, you know, Smedley Butler, he died at a relatively young age, and I tried to, much as for this book, I, I was able to contact uh, some ancestors of other figures. I mean, obviously, there aren't going to be too many people left alive from the, the events I cover in this book, but I wanted to find out what butlers were left. I got nowhere with it. I don't think he had children, and I, I couldn't 
find any ancestors anywhere, and it was kind of a dead end, and I really couldn't find out very much about his death. I think he was maybe 50, if something like that. It wasn't right. that old. Right. One of his more famous quotes, there are only two things worth fighting for. One is defense of the home and the Bill of Rights. And most of what he wrote, I could just sit there and say, right on. And that's pretty much what I would say. Those are the only two things I think I would fight for. And America hasn't fought. If you take out the attack on Pearl Harbor, which, again, I don't think that was a legitimate sneak attack, so I don't look at it like we were attacked legitimately anyhow. I think the the last, really the only time America has fought a war of self-defense was the War of 1812, when we were invaded by the British. Other than that, all our wars have been wars of aggression, where we've gone and decided to intervene or join a conflict overseas. And uh, I think that's unfortunate. And it's certainly not what the founders intended. And if Smedley Butler, boy, the founders would have loved Smedley Butler because that's exactly what they would have said. You know, yeah, exactly. We, we fight war, of course. I mean, I, I'm not a pacifist. If somebody, you know, actually attacks America, well, then, of course, I'll be out there fighting, too. But unfortunately, the, for the Bill of Rights thing, I think that's largely been lost a long time ago because most of our citizens don't appear to even believe in the Bill of Rights anymore. So uh, they don't even seem to understand them. And look at what we just the interview the other day with the CEO of YouTube, which is you know very disturbing. Where yes. she's you know just not only I mean just basically bragging about yeah we've eliminated seventy percent of the controversial content because a lot of our people are starting to be persuaded by it. It's like. Okay. Yes, uh, yes. It's pretty uh, odious out there, isn't it? Yes, it absolutely is. But we're going to jump back and forth here a little bit, but there's an obvious connection I mentioned with Smedley Butler, and that is Democratic hopeful Tulsi Gabbard, who sounds like when she's on the campaign trail, like she's almost like she's reading right from Smedley Butler's pamphlet, don't you think? Yeah, well, she's and she's been caught, I don't know if this is on purpose or what, reading uh, with a copy of JFK and the Unspeakable. By James Douglas, you know, which is obviously a pro-conspiracy book. Certainly, there's a lot about her that's attractive. Beginning with, you know, she's attractive. You know, physically, very attractive candidate, well-spoken. She's certainly sounding the right notes on foreign policy, and she's calling us out, calling us to task for all these senseless wars. And she's talking about the treatment of Assange and Snowden, and certainly that's exactly right. So she appeals to me, but she's a member of the CFR, and there's other kind of curious connections there. So. I, you know, it's hard after Donald Trump. I don't know if I could ever be sold on a candidate again. I, you know, I kind of I'm skeptical of everything, and we'll see what happens. But certainly, the establishment seems to hate her in the same way that they uh, have had such vitriol for Trump. So that speaks well of her. But I find it hard to believe, though. I, I know lots of people online that seem to support her, at least in my sphere. That she seems to be the favorite candidate. And yet they continue to claim she's so far down in these polls behind Buttigieg. And I don't know anybody that supports him. So I'm very dubious about the polls. But I would say, yeah, if there is a candidate that was closest to Smedley Butler, I guess she would be a considering all the other candidates are pro-war. Mm, yes. The CFR connection I wasn't aware of. Yeah. That is yeah. interesting. Interesting. All right. I just I, Because we were talking about Smedley Butler, I had to draw that connection to Tulsi Gabbard, but I want to pop back to post-war America, and I want to talk about something you address in the book, and that is the cancer explosion in the United States. All right. Is that really when it happened, just after the Second World War? Well, it started, I guess, uh, early on in the 20th century, but I, I have in the book there... I think it was the right around 1900, the leading causes of death in America and cancer and, and heart disease, which are, are now by far the leading causes of death in America, were you know way down on the list. 
And uh, I also talk about how there was a study recently by a, a major university where they studied mummies going back to antiquity, hundreds and hundreds of mummies, and they could find virtually no evidence of cancer anywhere. So I think it's, the evidence is pretty obvious that cancer was created in some way. And I have a lot in there about the vaccines, and obviously that's important, relevant now, because there's so much talk about the links between uh, vaccines and autism. Well, uh, when vaccines first became introduced, I guess, in halfway through the 19th century, I have lots of quotes from doctors at the time and scientists who were talking about, hey, this is dangerous. And later, uh, lots of quotes from doctors who talked about there was a direct correlation between the introduction of vaccines and the explosion of cancer. Certainly, there's something there. It's something in the that we uh, maybe in the food, the preservatives, or whatever. But what about the birth of the nuclear age and all of these test blasts? Well, yeah. Well, you had that that John Wayne movie, I guess, in the '50s, where every member, every, you know, every cast member, pretty much, got cancer within a short period of time. So, yeah, there's there's there, there's no question about it. And uh, if you also in the book, in, in the same section, I I talk about. Uh, all of the, uh, the, really the hideous experimentation that went on all throughout the 20th century uh, through uh, at our, our universities. Many, much of it's sponsored uh, <clears throat> with government tax dollars and through foundations, and uh, later with the intelligence agencies, especially the CIA and the military, where they did these kinds of hideous Frankenstein-like experiments uh, where they were you know, introducing um, really bad diseases into uh, mental patients and prisoners, orphans, uh, you know, the most vulnerable people in our society. And it was really, it wasn't the, of course, we've all heard of the Tuskegee Airmen. Tuskegee syphilis uh, experiment, which ran for for 30-some years or maybe 40 and and would have probably continued had it not been uh, exposed that they they were deliberately infecting men with syphilis and then they just wanted to see how this horrible right. disease would ravage the body and they pretended like they were treating these people but they yep. weren't it was just placebos they wanted to see what syphilis would do yeah and I, it was hardly an isolated most people would think it's an isolated incident it's not that was publicized and but i have in the book i have a, a lot of timeline of all the stuff going on of introducing syphilis and other diseases and even spraying whole communities uh, with deadly diseases, I mean, it's just bizarre stuff. And then you have, you know, groups of scientists that have that have gotten a hold of the uh, the terrible uh, Spanish flu or whatever it was in the World War One era that killed millions, and uh, are playing around with that. I mean, it's like they, apparently they haven't watched enough horror movies or whatever. Nothing's good's going to come out of that. But uh, if you look at that chapter uh, and just see all the uh, really the uh, chicanery that. Uh, our intelligence agency and military were, were up to, and I talk a lot about the, Dr. Gottlieb and Dr. Ewan Cameron, the experiments uh, on you know mind control and brainwashing. Up here in Canada, did. yeah, Allen yeah, Memorial right, Hospital. Right, exactly. These were hideous, uh, again, so the Manchurian MKUltra was, uh, you know, an obviously a huge project, and that was just a part of it. And people, um, I don't think enough Americans understand and this is our tax dollars that were financing this. This was not, you know, some kind of uh, something we weren't. I mean, our, we financed it, and lots of people were hurt. Dr. Frank Olson, you know, under these things with the LSD, uh, right. was almost certainly killed uh, because of that. And his ch- his sons are still trying to get uh, some kind of justice for that. So there's a there's lots of hidden history there, and that and that and again, all this kind of uh, exploded 
in the post-war era during the alleged Cold War and with the growth of the military-industrial complex, lots of projects were going on. And who knows, there, there may have been things that we still don't know about. I mean, you can go to things like uh, the Philadelphia Experiment, or I, I may write about in a future book with some other kind of supernatural type things where people believe that teleportation and uh, invisibility uh, was achieved. Uh, in the 1940s, right? Uh, right. Navy, and and, uh, and whether that happened, I don't know. But there's a lot of people that claimed it did, and you know, these are the kind of things that we don't know because there there were so much uh, so much money channeled into the military industrial complex, and there were so many projects that uh, we we still may not be aware completely of some of them. Well, the Philadelphia experiment connects with Montauk and Camp Hero, where a lot of those you know there are some very fantastic allegations about the Montauk chair and time travel and how it was connected to the Philadelphia experiment. But there's definitely something going on in the far east end of Long Island because this was a, this air base, Camp Hero, uh, that was, has been decommissioned for almost 40 years and yet the security there remains very tight. Uh, and these allegations that below the radar tower at Camp Hero is this labyrinth of, um, under, this underground facility where were small children uh, who wouldn't go, who wouldn't go, uh, no one would miss them. They'd be swept off the streets. <laughs> they were, yeah. you know, and uh, experimented on. And I'm wondering, of a, and they called them the Montauk Boys, um, mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, subjected to torture and drugging and so forth. Um, I'm wondering if that a lot of that time travel stuff is is provided as cover because. Once people start to talk about time travel in relation to what was really going on, most people they they lose the room. Most people walk away. It's a it's a great way to to put people off the scent of what uh, sure. the horrors that were really going on there. Oh sure, I mean that would that would be a perfect cover story or smokescreen or whatever. Yeah, there's no question about it. And uh, but you know we've kind of I mean we started this talking about the cancer explosion, but I think that anybody that looks at uh, the explosion of cancer and the fact that you know how many trillions have been funneled into these uh and i, I you know i find it odd you know and i i'll, I'll kind of uh, uh mimic abby hoffman here uh, one of one of his great quotes uh you know during the 60s he said you know why do they call it the drug enforcement agency man and it's a good point mm-hmm. you know because what what do they do they're enforcing drug i mean that makes no sense it should be maybe the drug prevention agency or something but why do they call it the american cancer society as if they're celebrating cancer and all the organizations are like that where it should be the american you know anti-cancer or something something like that but uh the benign society even and i i just i don't think and i in hidden history my book and also in survival of the rich is my other book uh i talked about the fraudulent nature of charities and included in that would be the american cancer society in place like there were very little of the money that is funneled into these organizations goes into actual research because they have so much overhead, they're paying their CEO a lot of money, and they're they're paying, uh, they're taking donations and paying for advertising to get more donations. The crazy way they do things, but uh, certainly at this point we should have made advances. And all you need to know about how successful they've been is that in the last uh, couple years, uh, for the first time in my lifetime, uh, the life expectancy of Americans is actually falling. Mm. And, and that should never ever happen. No. And, well, and, I mean, and when did Nixon declare the war on cancer? Nineteen seventy-three. So it's been forty-six. Yeah. Well, nearly five decades, and like we're the war ob- on drugs. <laughs> right. We're losing badly. We'll take a time out. Uh, come back with more of my conversation with Don Jeffries.
shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We were talking about the, the Cancer Society and a lot of these charities. I, again, I want to go back uh, because you talk about these uh, tax-exempt foundations, uh, the fabulous 50s. We, t- yeah. we talked earlier about Senator Joe McCarthy and the, the Korean War, but there's also uh, a section in that chapter uh, about the Reese Committee, which was uh, yeah. examining these tax-exempt foundations. Uh, I'm guessing things like the Ford Foundation, the Carnegie Foundation, and the right. Rockefeller Foundations. What did they discover? Well, it's very uh, lots of interesting things. I point out in the book, uh, one of the things they discovered went back to World War One, where they discovered that the Carnegie Foundation for International Peace, that, that connotates in pe- people's minds, wow, they're working for peace, you know. Uh, there, there's, there's a whole series of myths and there are discussions on how to get America involved in a war. And then later, how to get, once they, World War I was going on, they talked about how can we make this last longer? And oh. people can find the exact quotes in the book. I mean, this, this is under the auspices of the, the Carnegie Foundation for International Peace. And uh, the Reese Committee and uh, Norman Dodd, who was their chief investigator, he gave lots of interviews. I quote from him extensively. He, he wrote, wrote the, the final report. report, yeah. Yeah, and he, you know, he talked about how... Uh, they, they were, you know, they ran into such opposition, and just the idea of an, uh, it, because no one, you know, they, you know, uh, again, the, mostly the so-called liberal establishment was so much, and, and that would happen today, because I just imagine today, if you investigated the Clinton Foundation or the Bill Gates, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, that's the one I'd really like to investigate, because I'm sure, and there's so, I and mean, we already know, for instance, Bono, the rock star, his one foundation channels le- barely one percent. Of donations to actual research, one percent overhead. Oh 1%. dear Lord. So it's a, it's aptly named one foundation. Hmm. Well, I've I've been attacked on social media for people that like you too and everything. It's like, look, I got nothing. I, I'm not even talking about the guy's music. This is a reality. It's been exposed. It's been published everywhere, and it hasn't shamed him into. It hasn't stopped him from pontificating, you know, about these subjects when he's got a phony foundation that is apparently making him and his cronies, the people on his board of directors, even wealthier. But this is if you and this, I think, if Huey Long was alive today, he would really be looking at these foundations because that's where the wealth is. There's untold amounts of wealth in the Bill and Linda Gates Foundation because these are unaudited things, as much like the Fed is unaudited. Nobody knows how much, and certainly the Rockefeller Foundation and the Ford Foundation, the Carnegie Foundation, for International Peace. If we know back to World War One that an organization named for International Peace was plotting within their minutes about how to create, how to get involved in war. Mm. Imagine what they've been doing ever since. So I would love to find out how much. And that's what the Reese Committee was was trying to do. And they received a, a tremendous amount of opposition from the establishment, as you can imagine. And they really, I mean, I, I you know, put in the book the best, uh, the, you know, the best excerpts from Norman Dodd's uh, interviews about what they found. And they, you know, they did find some, some juicy tidbits, but... Uh, it stopped there, and, and certainly the, the, the foundations have grown, and, and now they become – these foundations are uh, every one percenter, once they become a one percenter, <laughs> they, uh, if they get enough money, they create a foundation because it's, it's a tax-free shelter. They learn early on this is a way for us to avoid taxes, 
And we also get great publicity. Right. Because we'll claim right. we're doing some kind of charitable work. Bill Gates, I mean, this is a guy that you know wants to reduce the human population, and he's not really very uh, picky about how he wants to do that. Um, well, I have to be to be fair about uh, the, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and and uh, much has been made of you know this idea of uh, you know vaccinations, and uh, I think his I think his aim, and we can argue about the efficacy and safety of vaccines, but I think his aim is to by reducing infant mortality, that'll have the effect of in in developing countries because if infant mortality is high, you you have higher birth rates because you know, out of 12 children, only three might survive. Uh, and so that's, I think, the end game with, with uh, the Gates Foundation. They want to reduce infant mortality. That will bring the, the population uh, down. Um, however, uh, when, we're talking, when we're talking about the, the, the Rockefeller Foundation, I, I just had uh, Paul Williams uh, on the program, uh, the author of Killing the Planet and How a Financial Cartel Doomed Mankind. It's, just, it's primarily about the Rockefellers and the Pilgrim Society. Uh, talk to me about the, uh, the, the pervasiveness, uh, of the Rockefellers, uh, and it, its influence on every aspect of American society. Well, I think you have to, really, John D. Rockefeller, the, the original, the old man, was really the father of crony capitalism, monopoly capitalism, because he was famous for his, his quote was, competition is a sin, which is a curious philosophy for a capitalist to have, because capitalism is supposedly built upon competition. But uh, he kind of gave the game away with that quote, is that you know these predatory capitalists, they, they don't believe in any competition, and they crush the competition. And uh, certainly I, I write in the book about how uh, Rockefeller, uh, it, it was no, uh, there's a conspiracy theory that says the reason why there was an early version of the electric car that, was, uh, that Henry Ford had uh, that was uh, quashed was because Rockefeller had bought up all this oil, and they they wanted to kind of steer uh, Americans towards that. And that once Americans started to drive, all these gas stations started popping up everywhere instead of charging stations because people were buying the gas cars. And uh, by the time all of you know, they basically got a monopoly on that, so they had a vested interest in seeing that the cars ran because they obviously Standard Oil. And of course, Huey Long, and going back to Huey Long. The Rockefellers were maybe his biggest, uh, at least public enemy. He fought because through their Standard Oil, he was fighting Standard Oil, and he was naming them by you know constantly pointing out the Rockefellers and Standard Oil. So the Rockefellers have been uh, front and center for a long time, and obviously even in the last. Uh, so I think Jay Rockefeller. I don't know if he's still in the Senate or not. If he ever retired, I'm not sure if he's still a senator or not, but. Uh, Nelson Rockefeller, obviously, was the vice president uh, after being governor of New York, and David Rockefeller just died not that long ago because he was 99. Uh, he was kind of the dean of the establishment. They're always front and center, and uh, I'm not sure who the young Rockefellers are at this point, but uh, they're one of America's ruling families. I, b- I believe the Kennedys. I think John F. Kennedy had a quote he told friends a long time ago. People think he said, "You know, people think we're rich," and he he kind of compared the Kennedys to the Rockefellers, and it's not. You know, it's not even relevant. The Rockefellers are that much wealthier. And then, of course, you go beyond the Rockefellers into the Rothschilds, the shadowy figures who, you know, unimaginable wealth. We really can't even calculate that. Right. And and what about the Rockefeller uh, Rockefellers' uh, involvement in things like uh, the Cancer Society? The, the people talk about, uh, you know, 
how the cancer society is really the cancer industry and right. that the Rockefellers right. own, according to Paul Williams' research, the Rockefellers, uh, you know, all of the, uh, the, um, uh, chemotherapy and radiation, that's all right. under the control of the Rockefellers. Is there any truth to that? Yeah, well, that's there. These uh, people like the Rockefellers have huge, you know, have lots big investments in the medical industrial complex. Absolutely, the pharmaceutical industry and uh, and treatments like chemo. And so, so, yeah, they have a vested interest. It's I've always said, you know, if if I mean, I first of all, I believe that you know, cancer can be cured. I believe they know what caused it because they pretty much created it, and uh, they've known for a long time. But it's too profitable. Let's, let's face it, if, if they came out with a magic pill tomorrow to cure all cancer, you take this and you know, you're cancer-free, what would happen to the medical industrial complex? There would be no more oncologists, all that right, right there. All the pharmaceutical companies that, that, cre- that create the chemotherapy products, all that would be gone. And, and really, the, the major chunk of the medical industrial complex is cancer and cancer-related uh, diseases. All that would be gone. So... It's almost like when you talk about free energy devices, what would the, how would the gas companies react to that? You can almost understand how they couldn't allow it because they've got trillions and trillions of dollars of profits every year through the oil companies. And if somebody came up with free energy, that would all be gone. We don't need your gas and oil anymore. So you can – I mean, I'm not sympathizing with them because I think they're you know, greedy and evil to be doing it, but – you can understand how that works where they're not going to allow this to happen because they're not – none of these people are in it for the betterment of, of mankind. They're in it for personal profit, and they're in it you know, for their own lives. And lots of them I, – I personally believe that a lot of these one percenters have secret technology. Look at Henry Kissinger. He's 96 years old, and he's obese. He's walking around, and I've, I've said many times, if you go around and scour the earth – I would like to see any other example of a 96-year-old obese human being. I don't think they exist. Right. They're usually pretty frail at that point. Yeah. I mean, well, they, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't make it anywhere near 96 years old if they were obese. And uh, Kissinger's doing just fine. Hmm. And uh, so that's, you know, I mean, of course, I can't prove that. But, I mean, it's just, it's an observation and uh, certainly seems strange to me. So it wouldn't... It wouldn't surprise me if they if they had this kind of technology for themselves, but uh, absolutely the Rockefellers and and many other very powerful forces have a huge vested interest in this medical industrial complex, and that's why their only solution is just to keep telling you to give, give, give to the American Cancer Society, give to the American Red Cross, give to these you know these these uh, American Heart Association, whatever, all these huge charities because. Uh, uh, whatever it is, I don't know if all the wealth is being siphoning off, siphoned off into their pockets, but clearly it isn't going to any kind of meaningful research because there aren't any significant improvements being made on these uh, ailments. All right, Don, stay put. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show in a moment. Don't go away. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Before I get back to my conversation with Don Jeffries, a quick note to remind you about my free monthly newsletter, Inner Sanctum. To subscribe, all you need to do is register at my website, strangeplanet.ca. All I need is your first and last name and your email address. 
Now, unfortunately, you just missed the December issue, but if you register right now, you'll get the January issue. It'll be delivered right into your inbox. And, of course, once you've registered, you'll also be entered into the monthly draw for Great Strange Planet gear. T-shirts, mugs, hoodies, socks, iPhone cases, and more. So, why not register right now? Again, go to strangeplanet.ca. And don't forget about my podcast, Conspiracy Unlimited. New episodes drop every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And to listen and subscribe, just go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com. Conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com. And we are approaching approximately 300,000 unique downloads per month. This podcast is really starting to take off. Okay, back to Don Jeffries. I know this is not part of the book because it ends in 1963 uh, but today is the 39th anniversary of the uh, the murder of John Lennon and i'm just wondering whether you believe the 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 same forces maybe even in some cases the same individuals who may have been behind JFK RFK MLK uh, Malcolm X were also involved in the murder of John Lennon yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, I don't believe the official narrative in John Lennon's death. I don't believe any official narratives, but certainly not that. And I, I'm actually, I, I'm almost finished a book on showbiz right now. It's kind of a different. I'll, I'll talk a lot about the John Lennon murder in that book. And um, suffice to say, you know, his son Sean Lennon is a noted believer in conspiracy. There, uh, one of the main investigating policemen is quoted on the record as saying, you want to say it's a conspiracy? Yeah. There are lots and lots of strange questions there. And uh, certainly Lennon was a figure that uh, we know the FBI had been uh, bugging him and trailing him for a long time. They tried to uh, extradite him out of the country. So there was certainly an organized effort on the part of the American government to try to silence him, to get him out of the country. So, yeah, I don't think it's any accident that uh, at that time probably the the, the loudest voice for peace in the music world uh, was assassinated in that way. I always found it curious, uh, and many others have, I'm sure, about the doorman that night at the Dakota, Jose Perdomo, who was a man of many aliases, and it turns out uh, was recruited by the CIA, I think in Miami back in the early 60s, and he helped to assemble Operation 40, which was the CIA a hit team that some people think also had a role in JFK's assassination. Yeah, you, you, isn't it amazing how these these curious individuals show up? Uh, you know, it, it, just to give you another example of something like that, in, in in this book, I talk about how there was a guy named uh, Zapata. I think it was Douglas Zapata, who was a confessed. He confessed to a lot of people think General Patton was murdered. George Patton. Uh, he confessed to murdering him at the behest of these powerful forces. Zapata went on to ha- become one of John McCain, Senator John McCain's uh, chief advisors, and was a member of the 9-11 Commission. Now, oh, if you can explain how, <laughs> how, how does that happen? So we find these, you know, the doorman at the, at the Dakota having, I mean, if you scratch the surface, it's amazing the kind of people you find that are, that are involved or associated with these events. And that's, it's what makes me a so-called conspiracy theorist, because there's, there's no other way to look at these things, because they're, there's so many connections and questions that you just you you have to turn off all critical thinking faculties to just say that they're all coincidences. Yeah, sure, there's some are, but there's far too many. 
And uh, that that's one of them, the Dakota thing. And that's just one of the really the intriguing things around Lennon's murder. But, uh, yeah, I don't believe for a second that uh, – I mean, I, again, I, I have uh, – in my book on showbiz ever comes out, I have it detailed a lot more. And um, it's uh, – I, I, I don't believe in many uh, official narratives, like I said. So and typically, uh, whether it's uh, John Lennon or Natalie Wood – John Belushi, any of those, I, and I cover all of them, uh, even Elvis Presley, things like that, in the book. Where uh, I think there's always more to the story, and if you, especially if you actually look and research it and, and see what the evidence is. Wait a minute, you know they're they're lying. I don't know why they're lying sometimes, but they most of the time they're not telling you the truth about the, you know, there's especially in showbiz, you know, uh, Randy Quaid, you know, is kind, yes. of, kind of considered a wacky guy. He talks about the Star Whackers. There's something to that. There, I, I believe there is. I, I believe so as well. Uh, last, I, I'm not sure if he's still up here in Canada. He sought refuge up here. I'm not sure. Maybe he moved back. He thought it was safe to go back. I'm not sure. Uh, Don, how do people get a copy of Crimes and Cover-Ups? Well, it's published by Skyhorse, and uh, you can you can get their publisher. Go to Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million. It's it's in lots of places. If you uh, if you Google it, you can find it. Get the best deal you can out there. Get your local library to you know you don't have to buy it. Have to tell, tell your library to add it to their collection. It's in lots of libraries, but if it isn't, uh, ask them to do that. Don, always a pleasure. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, Richard. When we come back, we'll commemorate the anniversary of John Lennon's murder. And I'm going to play part of an interview I did with R. Gary Patterson, my dear friend who died back in May of 2017. And we'll be talking about some of the strange coincidences or synchronicities surrounding Lennon's life and death, many of them involving the number nine. That's coming up next when The Conspiracy Show returns. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. I thought we'd sign off tonight with an interview I did with my good friend, the late R. Gary Patterson, talking about John Lennon and the number nine. Uh, this first aired back in December of 2015. Here's how it sounded. R. Gary Patterson, a rock and roll investigator and the author of uh, Take a Walk on the Dark Side, Rock and Roll Myths, Legends, and Curses. And I, I wanted to start the discussion uh, talking about some of the, I don't know, the coincidences and the, the, some of the strangeness surrounding Lennon's life and uh, career and his death with that number nine, mm-hmm. which seemed to follow Lennon around. Uh, I mean, he was born on, uh, on the 9th of October. We have, we have the number nine recurring in, 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 uh, many of his, of his songs, Revolution Nine, One After 909, Number Nine Dream. Um, what other, uh, where else can we find the number nine with John Lennon? <laughs> Well, as you said, he was born on October the 9th. He was born in a city, Liverpool, with nine letters. Uh, you can go through even the numbers on the license plate of the policeman who was off duty that hit Lennon's mother and killed her. The numbers added up to nine. Uh, he was aware of that. He was also, 
if you look at November 9th, 1961, that was when Brian Epstein discovered the Beatles. At the Cavern And Club. nine years later, they'll break up. That's right. 1970. Right. Also, he meets Yoko Ono on November 9th, 1966. So the nine played a role there. Of course, they became, you know, major Beatlemania in the United States when they played the Ed Sullivan Show on February 9th, 1964. There you go. When Lennon and Yoko arrived in the United States, they eventually stayed at the Dakota, but they came into the United States in 1971. You had nine years to that. That's 1980. The year he died, his apartment at the Dakota was number 27. Of course, that makes nine. The Dakota is located on West 72nd Street, another nine. Right. And he was shot there, and that was on 72nd Street. He was rushed to Roosevelt Hospital that had nine letters. Uh, Roosevelt Hospital is located on 9th Avenue, and he was pronounced officially dead at 1107. So you had seven plus one plus one is nine, and he was born at 6.30 p.m., So six plus three is nine. So he was born on a nine, died on a nine. A lot of people say, well, you know, he died on December 8th. Wouldn't it have been weird if he had died on December 9th? But you got to remember, he was a British citizen. And at the moment of his death, when it it was announced in England, it was already five hours ahead. So it was already December 9th at that time. There you go. Another thing is that his son, Sean, was born on his birthday on October 9th. Hmm. So, you know, you can look at it. I think they were together nine years, you know, Yoko and, and John. So there's so many things you could do a book on the number nine. I know that <clears throat> I have a lot of that listed in uh, Take a Walk on the Dark Side because to be aware of a number that would affect your life forever. And, I mean, he knew that, of course, obviously, because he had, even in when he was in the very early days of the Beatles, you had the one after 909. And uh, so obviously he was aware of it then. Of course, he was in a group called the Quarrymen. That was nine letters also. McCartney, right. when he meets Lennon, McCartney had nine letters in his name. The only Beatle with nine letters. And that became his prolific songwriting partner throughout, you know, Beatlemania. So, you know, you can look at that and you can say, oh, that's a coincidence. Isn't that a coincidence? But, you know, sometimes the definition of a coincidence, Richard, which we know, is uh, an explanation waiting to happen. There you go. Uh, I've got a, an, another one here for you because we just we 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 heard uh, uh, whatever gets you through the night, which was from Lennon's 1974 album Walls mm-hmm. and Bridges. Right. The album was his ninth non-Beatles right. album. It was issued in the ninth month of the year and number nine dream. Uh, let's see on the Billboard Hot 100. Where do you think it peaked? I think it peaked at nine. At number nine. My word, that's, I mean, and, and obviously Lennon was, oh, we've, uh, you mentioned Roosevelt Hospital, Ninth. did you mention it's on Ninth Avenue? Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, now, I mean, was Lennon, I, I believe Yoko was heavily into numerology, was, was Lennon into numerology? Oh, he was into numerology, astrology, I know that Yoko used to uh, control him at times for not going anywhere by telling him, John, Mercury's in retrograde, Mercury's in retrograde. <laughs> And uh, so, you know, I think that she really sort of, he had an interest, but I think she really piqued that interest. And, uh, you know, they would have a number of psychics over at their homes. They would do readings. Uh, When they moved into the Dakota, the actor who owned it had passed away. So they did a seance to contact his spirit to see if it would be all right for them to have the apartment, you know, that the spirit wouldn't bother him. I think it was Jack Ryan, something like that. I have to look it up. But 
when they did the seance and they spoke to the spirit, they notified his daughter that they had talked to her father in the afterlife, and he'd give them permission to have their, his old place at the Dakota. And uh, I'm sure that his daughter enjoyed that. But anyway, I mean, they were into it. And, you know, when you take a look at the Dakota, in a Playboy interview, there's a scene where Lennon's doing his interview, and he hears gunshots. That's right. And he turns to the, turns to the writer, and he says, Oh, another murder at the Rue Dakota. Well, in its entire 99-year history. <laughs> oh, 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 dear. In its 99-year history, there was only one murder at the Dakota, and that was John Lennon. And uh, there's a gate on the other side. It was called the Undertaker Gates, that if uh, someone who died at the Dakota, then their body would be taken out that way, like Boris Karloff. I remember he passed away as one of the tenants of the uh, Rue Dakota. But it's kind of interesting, you know, when you take a look even at the Dakota had its 99-year history with John Lennon being the first one murdered. Right. You know, did that you know, line actually make it into the Playboy interview? Did what now? The line did, yes. So foreshadowing. Yeah, a little foreshadowing, you I'll know, say. that he would say that. And, uh, I mean, did he have a premonition, Richard? What do you think? Were there premonitions with uh, John Lennon that he knew that he was going to have a short life? Well, he he actually predicted it, didn't he? Someone someone somewhere asked him, "How do you think you're going to die, John?" And he said, "Some loony's going to pop me off, or something like that." Do you remember that yeah. interview? I, I can't remember where or when, but he said that you know, some Fred, loony is going to pop me off. Yeah, Fred Seaman. Yes. In uh, his book, mentioned that Lennon was convinced that he would be shot to death. That it was a modern form of crucifixion. Wow. And that for his line, the Beatles were more popular than Jesus Christ, that he would see that. That would be some sort of, that would be the way he would go. Some loony with a gun was shooting. And what was odd is that he was shot five times. And uh, did you know that Mark David Chapman stops in Atlanta before he comes to New York to kill Lennon? He tells this policeman, who's a friend of his, that he doesn't have any bullets for his gun. He's going to New York. He needs it for protection. So the police officer gave him five bullets. They were hollow point, too, weren't they? Yes. Well, they, you know, it, 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 he meant business when he did this. But Leonard was shot five times. And if you know anything about medieval literature and you take a look at cross symbols, you, talk, you take a look at the number five. And the number five, for instance, if a knight had a five-pointed star on his shield, like Gawain in the Green Knight, right. the five-pointed star stood for the five wounds of Christ. Oh, my. So you you always take a look at the five bullets, and I think about the five wounds of Christ, you know, the crown of thorns, each hand that sleep together and the wound to the side. And you take a look at those five, and you're saying, you know, this is odd, you know, that that you had the medieval concept of the Christ figure with the five wounds, and then John Lennon being shot five times and saying that that would be the way he would go. And, uh, you know, that was documented much earlier than that. So, yeah, you have a premonition. And, and the song, Number Nine Dream, you know, isn't that kind of odd, too? Yes, there's something very ethereal and haunting about that about that song. Every time I hear it, it gets me. Yeah, me too. I have the same, it have the same effect on me. And the line where he says, someone calls out my name. Ah, yes. And you hear John. John. And May Pang told me that it that was her voice. That she was the one who went in to the studio with John, and she's the one who calls his name softly. But after John died, Yoko had May's voice removed and placed her voice saying John. Is that right? 
Yeah. And of course, someone calls my name, and we know Mark David Chapman called out to him, Mr. He Lennon. He did, Lennon. Mr. Lennon. So he turned his head. Someone did call out his name. There's a little bit of my interview with the late R. Gary Patterson from December 2015. That's it for me. My thanks to Owen Wolf and Ryan White. I'll be back next week with Thomas Horn, author of The Wormwood Prophecy for the full two hours. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. And what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the rooftops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. <laughs>